We went on live on my show, <laughs> just to let you know. You're listening to The Grindstone, a philosophy podcast from Purdue University. here in the Department of Philosophy at Purdue, and I'm excited to welcome today's guest. He is the Joyce and Edward E. Brewer Chair in Applied Ethics. We are here today with Dr. Mark Bernstein. Mark, thanks for being here. My pleasure, Matt. You're just saying that, but thank you. (laughs) I slightly exaggerate. (laughs) Well, thanks thanks anyway. Um, So, Mark... Here on the Grindstone, one of the things we like to do, we like to understand how people came to study philosophy, get to know the person behind the philosopher a little bit. Um, and I know before we started recording today, you were telling me that there is indeed a story, which has, it sounds like, some great specificity to it. So if you wouldn't mind, please, Dr. Bernstein, tell us how is it that you came to study philosophy? Well, I was a math major at Queens College, and I had taken a philosophy Queens College in Flushing, New York. That's right. right. I know it well. Part of the City University of New York on Casino Boulevard. But be that as it may, <laughs> I took a philosophy course, though I was a math major, by uh, Joseph Patrick Michael Mullally, who I believe was Irish, but that's just a guess. <clears throat> At any rate, he was teaching something, I don't remember what, but I thought he was absolutely wrong about something he mentioned in class. And I went home after class, and for the first time in my life, actually, uh, wrote an assignment that wasn't required of me, showing him that he made a mistake during his lecture. What was the, what was the lecture on? I have no idea. Okay, okay. I have no idea. But I brought it in the next day, and he took a quick look at it before class started. And he says, well, I think you're wrong, meaning I, Bernstein, am wrong. But we'll (laughs) talk about it in class. We'll address it, but uh, I think you're incorrect. And I said, fine. And what he did was he spent the entire class period on my objection to him. And I was wrong, by the way. But it was so soothing to my ego that I thought, perhaps mistakenly, that I, maybe I'd be pretty good at this kind of stuff, and uh, <laughs> I'd give it a shot. And so I uh, started taking philosophy classes more seriously then. Mm. Still got the math degree, but went on and got an MA at Cal State Northridge, a town just north of Los Angeles, and then went to my PhD at UC Santa Barbara. And, and the the latter in philosophy. Yeah, all in philosophy, just the BA in math. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So that is that is very specific. So <laughs> you were a math student. This philosophy class you were taking, do you remember, was it required at all? I mean, was no. it just like something you would, what, what led you to sign up for it? You just, on I a just, whim or just? 
Yeah, I like the, the names of these courses. Um, and I, it, it was interesting. Actually, Mullally uh, taught pretty much the same course, no matter what the rubric of the class was. Right. And uh, I don't know if any of your listeners know, but Michael Friedman, who taught at Penn and at Princeton, mm-hmm. I'm not sure where he is now, uh, wasn't a classmate of mine, but he went to uh, Queens College when I did and was a philosophy major. And what's interesting, if people know Mike Friedman, very good philosopher, Kant scholar, the Philosophy of the Year Award went to Friedman, but not Michael, but to his mother. Interesting. taking philosophy. So that's kind of an interesting story. She was taking philosophy classes at the you, same time? Yes, same time as her that's, son and as me. That's But awesome. we didn't know each other at, the, at Queens. I, we spoke together once years after and swapped some stories about Mullally, for example. Yeah, that's always, uh, so what I assume, I mean, you guys didn't know each other at all, so no. years later somehow you found out that you were both Queens yeah. College alum. Right. If I'm not mistaken, there's sort of a a, a list of heavy hitters of uh, New Yorkers that are Queens College alum, correct? There are. Well, Paul Simon. I was going to say. I'll, I'll break into song. If you, no, no, don't, please. Okay, all right. Please. Nailed it, by the way. <laughs> and I'm not sure, I, I guess Art... Garfunkel went there, but I'm not positive of that, actually. But uh, at the time, uh, really, it was an excellent school. I mean, I don't know how good it is now, but uh, you needed a certain average to get in, and tuition was free. And I came from a very lower middle-class family, and I knew that if I had sufficient grades in high school, that's where I was going. I wasn't being able to afford Ivy League school, even if I were to get in. Yeah, yeah. I think if I'm not mistaken, you a Seinfeld fan? I am. I believe that, I don't know if either one of these people actually went to Queens College, but at least in the story in the Seinfeld universe, yeah. I think, weren't they at Queens College, Seinfeld, Seinfeld. and maybe Costanza? Costanza? I, I don't I, remember. I, I, th- I, th- I think at one point there's an episode where I, I'm almost positive one of them's wearing a Queens College shirt, and I think that's part of the story. So I don't know if one of the uh-huh. writers or something was there. But anyways, Queens College gets has some representation yeah. in the Seinfeld universe. Yeah. Never met him. I mean, he's got to be close to my age, I would think, maybe about five, six years younger, but uh, didn't know him at the time. I'll tell you this, and then we'll move on to more interesting topics of discussion because – listeners know I have very little of interest to say but um I was for a time uh in 2006 2007 the shipping and receiving manager at the Queens College bookstore whoa yeah that is prestigious <laughs> still to this day and no offense to my current employers but one of my favorite jobs I've ever had just because let me tell you something you want to learn about the world Talk to a UPS driver yeah. in Flushing. You'll you will learn some things. Absolutely, some things that can't be unheard. Um, so you are here um, in this capacity as the uh, we have a chair in applied ethics. So you did the BA in math. You went on to study philosophy, right. um, and was ethics your broadly speaking was that your field? No, actually, I started off purely in metaphysics, and I oh. I did my dissertation on free will. It was 108 pages, none of which were good. But it got through, uh, and they gave me the choice, I remember, of whether I wanted to or not wanted to defend the dissertation. So I said, okay, I won't defend it. And they said, fine. Yeah. 
and uh, maybe I shouldn't say this, but it's too late now. And uh, they gave me the degree. And then I got a one-year job at Wesleyan mm. in Connecticut. Yep. And then after that, I took a tenure-track job at the University of Texas in San Antonio. I was there for 23, 24 years, and then came to Purdue around 14 years ago. So you're a native New Yorker. Yes. Then you do some time in L.A. <laughs> yes, that's hard time. Yeah. <laughs> you've yeah. done some hard, you've done a stretch in Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then you made your way down to Texas. Yes. Um, where I really did hard time. Yeah. <laughs> in a real kind of literal way. But go ahead. Um, how, how was that? I mean, uh, we'll get back to the philosophy, I sure. promise. But just how was that? I'm always curious with New Yorkers because New York is such a unique and interesting place. I lived there for a couple years, but it's very much a bubble. And I imagine L.A. is similar in some ways. Like it's hard to sometimes grasp the rest of the world from the middle of, the, you know, from, from the middle of Queens. Yeah. Um, but how did you, and particularly the... Um, like the climate, how did you adjust being out in L.A. and then down in San uh, Antonio? Well, it's an easy adjustment to L.A. It's so pleasant. Now, I San imagine. Antonio is just incredibly hot. The problem with San Antonio is not only that it's 90 degrees every day through the summer, but it's just purely unrelenting. I mean, all through the day, it does not cool off at nights, which is unlike Los Angeles. And I lived about half of my time in Texas in Austin, which is a similar climate. And I remember I used to jog at the time, and I was running literally in 102-degree weather. I mean, it was murderous. Yeah, that's not for me. I can't handle If it gets, let me tell you something, if it gets above 72 degrees, I'll just I'll bring multiple outfits with me. Go to Santa Barbara. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right. Go to Santa Barbara. Yeah. And that... Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that where you said you did your PhD? Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, do you feel like weather has an effect on how on your philosophy? Do you feel like weather can affect how you read things, how you see things? Um, do you think that, and beyond necessarily like a cultural sense of like, you know, maybe you grow up somewhere and you're predisposed to whatever. No, I don't. You don't? <laughs> no. Uh, do you think Not that, in my experience. Okay. Either. Do you think that generally, though, it can affect the way you read things? Like on a particularly hot day in Texas, in San Antonio, are you predisposed to say this argument is terrible? Gee, I, I never thought of that. I do remember when I was at Santa Barbara, we had a graduate student who wrote his entire thesis on the beach. He would write a couple of pages a day. And Sounds necessary. Yeah. It was really nice, uh, but I don't know if he would have thought better on the beach than he would have somewhere else. I don't know. I don't think he's in the profession anymore. But well, <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe that says all there we need to know about uh, philosophy on the beach. <laughs> um, so in your role now, so uh, so you were focused on metaphysics early yeah. in your career, mm -hmm. and then how did you um, progress into applied ethics and particularly animal ethics, which is something that I want to discuss sure. with you. Um, well, it was kind of abrupt. I mean, I another interesting story, so I claim. <laughs> I was driving with a friend of mine, went to graduate school together <coughs> in Riverside, California. And he mentioned... Steely Dan on the radio. I don't remember, but we're, we're wearing uh, flip-flops, I'm sure. Steely and Dan <laughs> on the radio. <No. laughs> Could be. 
And he said something that, uh, and I don't remember what he said, so don't ask me for the content of it, but it struck me as right, and it had the implication that we shouldn't be eating non-human animals. And I thought about it for the rest of the day, and I thought it was right, and from that day, it was no transition. I never have had a piece of meat. Interesting. I have had cheese, but no meat for now, whatever it's been, uh, I don't know, 35 years. I'm not even sure how long, in that range. So it was that immediate. This argument was. was so compelling, and you thought, yes, that's well, correct, and that was it. Yeah. You, you quit yeah. cold turkey. So to speak. Good, good. <laughs> Thank you. Not that I've ever heard that before. Yeah, but yeah good. No, I'm sure. <laughs> and also, there's supposed to be a drummer who does... Yeah, r- rim, rim shots shot, yeah. for me there, oh, but uh, he couldn't make it today. Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, so it w- it was abrupt, and uh, since that time, I spent most of my philosophical career, if you will, uh, dealing with animal ethics. So, it was, so you said you were driving through Riverside. Were you still living out there at the time? I mean, this was like during your PhD years, or were you already a professional no, philosopher? I was, no, I was during my PhD yeah, years. So, okay. I was living, uh, I wasn't in Riverside. I don't know if I was in, I must have been living in Santa Barbara at the time. Okay. Um, but so you were driving around, right. and so you're, had you already like started to work in a certain direction um, towards the towards the dissertation. I mean, I'm assuming you're in grad school and you've probably already done some work, so you didn't necessarily reinvent the wheel for the dissertation or anything. Oh God, no, yeah, no, yeah. no, no. I was one of those fortunate. I never rewrote my dissertation. Yeah, I don't think I rewrote a sentence of it actually. But th- th- that's not to say so much on me. I mean, I, I had a very uh, unique uh, committee. Um, one guy, I don't think, read it. One guy, I think, didn't understand it, and one guy didn't really care about it. But um, that was fine. So uh, I wrote it. I, uh, what was the title of it? Do you remember? Yes, uh, Freedom of Will and Autonomy of Mind. Don't ask me what it means. I'm sure I could have juxta- juxtaposed those, and it would have made as much sense. But anyway, that was the title. It was very short, 108 pages. I don't remember. I probably wrote it in about three months and uh, handed it in and... Uh, and the rest is history. The rest is history. <laughs> so you make your way to San Antonio, Texas. Yeah. Um, was that to teach metaphysics? Is that or they hired me mostly for metaphysics, although I, I taught almost everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean I mean I even taught a seminar on Hobbes. Hmm. I taught a seminar on Peter Singer. So uh, I was kind of all over the map at UT San Antonio. Yeah. And then, so in your professional career, what then started leading you down that path of writing about um, applied ethics and particularly animal ethics? Yeah, I, I felt that there could be a real, you know, philosophical basis for uh, something that just hit me that automatically that seemed wrong. And I, I immediately, actually, the topic that st- I started with and really still consumes me is uh, moral status. Because I think that's kind of the major idea, of course. People think, generally speaking, that animal lives and animal interests are just less important than human interests and human lives and so have a lower status than humans do. And it's to that idea that I've uh, dedicated uh, a lot of the last 30 years or so. That's interesting. So I have two questions. One, I want to come back to moral status. But to go back to this drive, you guys are in flip-flops. 
Steely yes. Dan's on the radio. So you say, No yes. doubt the Countdown to Ecstasy album, <laughs> which I suggest for all the listeners. Um, <laughs> and so y- your friend makes this argument. Yes. Um, and I know you said you don't necessarily recall specifically what your friend was no. saying, but if you can't, what was it about the argument that, that at least, um, if not the specifics and the content of what your friend was saying, what was the you know, the gist of the argument that made you make such an immediate uh, change to being a vegetarian, though, you, though you've yeah. said you're not vegan, but you're vegetarian. No, that's true. I'm, I'm close to vegan, but mm. it would be untrue to say I am vegan. Okay. I, I'm guessing, and this is a rational reconstruction, he must have said something like, well, animals suffer and feel pain, and it's unnecessary for them to do that, mm. mostly in factory farming, yeah, yeah. animal experimentation, hunting. Yes. And yeah, I think that yeah. was probably the thing that got me started and thinking, yeah, why should they? And they're completely innocent. So why should they undergo uh, gratuitous suffering at our hands? And so it sounds like this feeds a little bit into the, the moral status yeah. um, that you were talking about a minute ago. And so if I understand that correctly, that's what you mean by moral status is that there tends to be this intuitive uh, thought or feeling amongst humans that because we're rational animal or whatever that there's for, there's some inherent reason that we are morally um, superior to animals and other creatures on the sort of hierarchy of living beings yeah. and that's an easy way to then justify say eating meat or harming animals in yeah. other ways is no that- that's right i mean i think of moral status as being how much uh, moral consideration is owed to that individual. So someone of higher moral status is owed more consideration, more concern, more attention than an individual with lower moral status. That's kind of the way I think of it. And I I think I'm not idiosyncratic in that use. And for you, is that um, the strongest argument that someone can make against eating animals or say for being vegetarian or vegan is that for you um i guess the the yeah just the strongest argument the strongest line that someone can take in that conversation if you were trying to say convince somebody that they shouldn't eat animals yeah i i think so i think most that's basically what it, it i think comes down to i mean i wrote a book and i think the first sentence was something like i called it the uh principle of gratuitous suffering which basically says just what i said before that it's wrong to cause gratuitous suffering to a totally innocent creature i'm paraphrasing my own stuff now and of course i have to explain what gratuitous is which i do but yeah i think that's the main idea once you recognize that animal non-human animals suffer uh eating them seems to be mistaken does the principle of gratuitous suffering apply to um, Thanksgiving at the Kroll House? <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding, I, I, Mom. Are you, are you eating turkey? No, no. I just meant for <laughs> our interaction. No, I'm kidding. My mother's one of my only listeners, so I probably shouldn't throw Hi. our family under the bus. Hi, Mom. <laughs> Hi, Mrs. Kroll. <laughs> um, but so your son's doing well. <laughs> Tell him to eat a little more. He should eat more, as my mother would say. <laughs> exactly in that way, by the way. But all right, at any rate. So, well, let me ask you about this, though, because, okay, so your, your mother's encouraging you to eat more. How was that transition, um, like when you, say, went home for the next family holiday, or I don't know, you know, your family structure, but when, yeah. like, uh, sort of telling people, oh, yeah. sorry. 
Well, I told I her don't this. Do the brisket I, anymore, or whatever. I told her when I was in Texas that okay. I had become a vegetarian. Yeah, yeah. And she, she, she said to me, I remember this. She passed away about uh, six, seven years no, ago. I'm sorry. Thank you. But she said, "Does that mean you don't eat chicken?" And I said, Mom, chicken is not a vegetable, Mom. Yes, it means I don't eat chicken. <laughs> and she would, when I came back and I maintained my vegetarianism, uh, she was just uh, not against it so much, but trying hard to understand someone who would do that. I mean, Jewish eating has a very central part for animals and it's the ethos, especially as just certain holidays you eat meat. Yeah. Sure. But um, I didn't, and it didn't lead to any fights or anything. And she she ultimately be, became used to the idea, and I think, if not endorsed it, at least tolerated it. <laughs> well, yeah, sure, was accepting. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, Mom. Yeah. <laughs> so you said you got to Purdue 14 years ago? Yeah. Is that right? I think so, that's right. Yeah, kind of mid-2000, 2000s. Yeah, about mid 2006. Six or so, I think 2005, something like that. How did you find that transition, being a vegetarian? Because one of the things that always concerns me for my vegetarian vegan friends in this part of the country, I mean, I'm a Hoosier born and raised. It's very meat and potatoes part of the yeah. country. Did you find that um, difficult, particularly like, you know, going out, restaurant? Was it yeah. difficult to find? It is harder to be a vegan or a vegetarian, for that matter, in Lafayette than it is in San Antonio or Austin, Texas which you might be surprised, since that's a huge meat-eating state. Yeah, barbecue country. Right. But Austin has vegan restaurants. They have, a, well, I know every place, and I, I was a president of an animal rights group, and we would demonstrate, and we'd call up a particular restaurant, and they would have a vegan chocolate cake ready for us, and they knew who we were, so about, whatever, 10, 12, 15 of us would go over. But Austin has a good nice. e and eating besides great music, it has a it has a really good restaurant scene. San Antonio not as much, but still it's a it's a big city. It's over a million people. And so there's San Antonio a, is? Oh yeah. I did not know that. No, San Antonio I think place. it's about the tenth biggest city in the country. Now. I did not know that. Okay. And Austin now when I was there was about three hundred and fifty thousand. Now I think it's about eight hundred and fifty thousand. Um Thanks to Michael Dell. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's just up the road in a kind of a northern suburb of Austin, uh, Round Rock. Okay. Yeah. So the restaurant scene is not as good in San Antonio, although I've heard it's gotten better. But Austin has a tremendous variety of food, so it's really not all that difficult. They had good good vegan pizza, for example. So that was nice. I don't think that place is still there, but it may be. <laughs> So let me ask you, uh, uh, first of all, I should say, with all due respect to Austin, Texas, it's not just because of Dell that the, it's, it's one of those cities that I constantly read about is growing and booming yeah. and, you know, population, but they're yeah. doing well. Um, so let me ask you this question. The hard-hitting, we, we ask the hard-hitting uh, questions I, I can deal here with at the it. Grindstone. <laughs> uh, we have never blinked in the face of controversy. So I've heard. <laughs> Most of which have been me, um, self-created controversies. No, that's the best We're controversy free. Um, do you think people that eat meat are unethical agents? Yeah, insofar as they eat meat, they are. Yeah. Especially again, if they have enough knowledge. I guess that you can plan, you can uh, talk about being ignorant and therefore not blameworthy. But it's getting harder to do that now. 
I mean, there's articles virtually weekly in the New York Times about some factor of vegetarianism and veganism. It's on television. They've got these impossible burgers, these beyond meat burgers. Yeah, I yeah. mean, even those people who are not particularly interested in the issue, I think, have to come in some contact with it now. So it's it's more difficult to plead ignorance, I think. Um, how do you feel about, say, small farms that raise animals and then at the end of the animal's life consume the meat? Yeah. Oh, and the animal dies a natural death? Yes. Oh, no, I don't have a particular problem with that. There are some derivative reasons I might have problems, but generally I don't. I I tell my students uh, when I die they're free to eat my body, but I ask them (laughs) to please be very sure that I'm dead and not in a deep sleep. So hit me on the head a couple of times, yell in me, and if I'm not moving, okay. Feast away. I I, I wouldn't mind it a bit. Because I I do wonder about that sometimes. Um, Yeah, with vegetarians and vegans. I mean, I should say just for disclosure, I eat meat. Um, And but I wonder sometimes. And let me make very clear, I'm not like pro massive factory farms or anything like that. But you know, there's a lot of small farms now where, um, like, you can actually go purchase an animal and mm-hmm. they'll raise the animal and the animal will contribute to the ecosystem of the farm and then at the end of the animal's life you get the meat and they'll even take you know everything from the animal's body that you know you don't get as in terms of the meat and find ways to repurpose it for again the the ecosystem mm-hmm. i don't know exactly how they do it but you know they contribute it to whatever being able to like <coughs> contributed to the soil or some yeah. in some way and so i wonder sometimes um yeah if, if i don't have a particular problem with that but i mean we, you should keep in mind i'm sure you're aware of this that that is well under one percent of the meat that's that's yes. processed yeah. in this country so um <coughs> the great majority of meat we eat here is a product of factory farming yeah absolutely and sadly um do you pay attention to um environmental um, arguments or conversations discussion um or in terms of like sustainability because you mentioned two products earlier which i don't want to mention by name just in case we get sued um no i'm kidding um you mentioned things like impossible burgers or meatless burgers or whatever um i've heard some interesting stuff about how the way those um products are developed Mm-hmm. is actually much worse for the environment mm. um, because of the the energy required to create these things, particularly um, excuse me, where they're, where they're lab-created or lab-assisted, that that's actually much worse for the environment than saying growing um, vegetables mm-hmm. to, like, make a burger. Although, if you have a huge farm where you, say, gr- grow soy and you, like, monocrop and then turn that into soy, that can also be really bad for the mm-hmm. environment. So I wonder um, yeah, if you have any thoughts on that, just how I to contribute or how these things may, though you're not eating meat, and ethically we may be more comfortable with that, they can all, they can have a negative ramification f- in terms of sustainability or environmental yeah. issues. No, I, I'm, I'm wary of that. I don't know really the statistics on that. I do know that I think cows are responsible for about 18% of the methane in this country, which yeah. is a lot. Sounds uh, about right. The energy going into these uh, 
non-meat meats. I, I would have to look in, into the numbers on that. I, I really don't know. But uh, assuming it is kind of what you said, yes, that's, a, that's certainly a concern. Yeah, and sorry to put you on the spot because I no. realize we don't have the data in front of us, but I was just thinking, you know, more, yeah. I can your tell you that, responses yeah. to that? I mean, I, I, there have been books out about um, how it's ecologically better to have uh, cows roaming and eat their yeah. meat. But a lot of that stuff, I just read a book that came out last year, That a lot of that stuff has been debunked. Okay. That's not to say what you mentioned is incorrect. But sure, I, sure. I'd be, you know, wary and and see who's publishing that kind of material. But As, yeah, it, yeah, it's something to look into, to be sure. It is, yeah, and that's one thing when you look into these, um, yes, anything that's published about the environment or sustainability, it's always worth doing a little background yeah. into who funded the project yeah. and who, yeah, who published right. it. Follow the um, money. Yeah, and who got the grants and where the grants came from? It came from Nestle's or something. You might be suspicious. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> came from i didn't say that nestle's by the way mm-hmm. that was that was Kroll. in case <laughs> you're wondering about a suit <laughs> he held up this big sign it said that now at any rate uh yeah no that's might, that's might i interject with one thought please do the first amendment okay <laughs> <laughs> i don't know why i just oh, felt oh, like oh, I, oh, no right. i just was okay. saying that's no. i can say whatever i want no. i don't think that's true i represent the department of philosophy here at purdue <laughs> university and just to remind you you're listening to the grindstone the official podcast of the department of philosophy at purdue university talking today with dr mark bernstein i think i covered that pretty well okay <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah but uh, to to rein us back in here and by that i mean to rein myself back in here um but i do think that's something that is that's Interesting. I remember a few years ago, um, like sort of mid to late 2000s, there were these articles about how um, tofu was really bad for the environment because of the amount of water that it took to like process it or the same with rice. So it's always it's 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 an interesting space for me because so I do eat meat. Obviously, I'm not like Mm. supporting huge factory farms. Um, But then I also think about it's interesting sometimes when you see the sort of food options available say in a grocery store for vegetarians and you realize that um environmentally it's not necessarily um there isn't anything gained there in terms of carbon footprint though obviously yeah you're not well well, remember about half the water in this country is used for animals is that true it is true okay latest statistics i saw thank you and somewhere and again i don't have exact figures but Somewhere like 80 to 90% of soy and corn is used for feeding animals. Yeah, so it's that's an a enormous amount of that, and uh, that's a wasteful use, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, the factory. For, our, for human point of view, to give up all that land, then that's an awful lot of water. That, yeah, the fa- and factory farming, not to mention if there's like pesticides or other like. Right. Um, chemicals involved in you know contributing to growing that massive of you know a crop um, and then then a lot of that goes to basically being ground up for feed for factory you know yeah for animal factory the way they get rid of wa- animal waste uh, varies from okay to not very good at all so that's another concern um, that these the way that these factory farms gets rid of the yeah. animal waste well there's a lot of waste think yeah. of how much manure. yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, it gets washed into uh, water, obviously. Yeah, yeah. You know. So it gets into, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's, Local. it's a concern, yeah. Again, they have agents in the water supposed to clean all of this out and yeah, everything. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, but what are those agents? I mean, 
I, you know, who knows? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I'm sure it'll turn out worse than we think it is in 10 years, like everything does. Well, that's it for today, gang. No, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, leaving on a high note. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, if you don't mind, towards the end of the conversation here, I was, I, was, I want to change gears slightly. Um, well, first I should ask, is there anything else you would like to say on the term, or in terms of vegetarianism, animal ethics? Um, well, just one thing, because I get this by uh, question by students saying how hard it is to become a complete vegan, which I am not, or even being a complete vegetarian. But, you know, as, if you do something, it's better than nothing, and it helps. I mean, they yeah. have this meatless Mondays in some areas. Yeah, yeah. You could give up meat for a day or maybe two days or a couple of meals where you'd normally eat. You know, and it, it all adds up. I mean, there's 330 billion people uh, in the United States, and if each one of them really didn't have any meat on Monday, it, it would it would make a difference. Yeah, I heard on a, another podcast, I can't remember what it is. If I did, I would definitely name it. But I heard on another podcast... Um, yeah, uh, just a similar point that somebody was saying, you know, his goal wasn't to turn everybody into vegetarians or vegans, but even if we just reduced the number of meals that we had, particularly like, say, if you're in meat and potatoes country where every night it's yeah. meat and uh, yeah, just the, no, yeah, just how much we could contribute towards the carbon footprint by just reducing that slightly, you know. One correction. I might have said three hundred thirty billion. I think you did Sorry. actually. No, no. I was gonna. I was gonna mention <laughs> million. That, yeah, yeah. Three hundred thirty million. Yeah, but there are about seventy-four billion animals worldwide annually that are killed for their food. United States is somewhere in the neighborhood of eleven to twelve billion. Billion. Now that's what a B, as Carl Sagan would say. I did get the population of the country wrong. So for each person in this country, it's uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 33 animals per year. Each one of us is eating. Mm -hmm. Mostly chickens, of course, but chickens count. Hmm. I did not know that. Yeah. Sorry. That's I okay. As listeners know, I rarely have, I rarely go silent <laughs> on the grind. But that's really affected me. Yeah. Yeah, seventy-four billion animals yeah. worldwide. Matter of fact, I get that. From Does that include fish and animals of the sea? That does not include fish. The oh. numbers on fish vary so enormously that it's hard to f count them. I have yeah, seen I numbers that estimate going over a two trillion. Now I have no idea how accurate. I've seen numbers much, much, much lower than that. But I'm now counting terrestrial. Basically, basically chickens, cows, and hogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, China's eating a lot more meat now than they did 10 or 20 years ago, and there's about 1.4 billion people in China, thereabouts. So, yeah, a lot of people. Great demand for meat. So there's been more an increase in vegetarianism and veganism, at least especially in this country, but it hasn't kept up with the number of people eating meat that increases every year. So in absolute terms, we're, we're quote-unquote, losing ground. But hopefully things will change, if, though probably I'll never see it. I mean, it's incredible when you put things in perspective like that. It's, uh, you know, it's similar with uh, environmental or sustainability issues. I mean, you think about, well, I should 
just make sure I turn the lights off when I leave the mm -hmm. apartment and things like that. And there are some people that say, yes, every little bit contributes. And then there's some people, uh, even people that are like, you know, studying sustainability that will say, yeah, I think we need to stop talking about like, you know, let's all turn the lights off and use less power. And let's talk about what like the big scary numbers are to bring this into perspective. Mm. And um, I mean, it's one of the great things about being able to host um, a podcast and to be able to talk to professional philosophers about these things. I did not come into the studio, by the way, shout out to the studio. It's yeah, beautiful. It's Have beautiful. you seen this wall art here? Oh, Have you yeah. seen this fabric art <laughs> from my late grandmother's house? That's a Picasso. No, it's so, beautiful. Yeah, it's, stuff. it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, the, yeah, I did not come into the studio, <clears throat> AKA my office today thinking that it, this would, but I don't know. I guess there's, I'm just going to say some things to the listeners. I guess there's this idea that I think, well, if I just buy less meat, which I do, I have over the last few years, I have, I won't get into like my rules for grocery store shopping, but I have certain whatever rubrics and logistics that I bring into play for how frequently I buy meat and things like this, um, which is much less than I used to not asking for any applause, but I'm just saying, you know, but when you hear a number like 74 billion land animals effectively, right. um, worldwide, worldwide every year. Yeah. And even when you said 33 animals a year per person, this country in, in the U S I mean, that's just, that's frightening. That makes me, I mean, that just makes me feel really sad and sick. And now I'm questioning yeah, I mean, I, I've never thought I was a good person, but now I have more reason to be convinced that I'm certainly not a good person. Yeah, I hope you I tell your audience to stay away from any firearms after listening to this show. No. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, no, yeah that, I get depressed a, a lot touch. over this. Um, not good. I'm wondering if I should. Uh, there's part of me that's, uh, that feels like I should say to my audience, I am going to try like a vegetarian month or something just to try it. I know it's super corny. Again, I'm not asking for like any applause. I mean, who, who am I? I get that. But I just, I feel really compelled right now when you say that number, it's the 74 billion. I mean, that's, that's astronomical. That's a number that I have a, you know, armchair philosophical theory that human beings can't actually comprehend numbers like that. You it's can not, see it visually, yeah. but you can't really understand a oh, number right. like that just because it's so big. Yeah. I mean, it's, be, you know, it's... Yeah. I have it, a good it, test for your... Now, your audience is an intelligent audience, but I would be willing to bet most. a quarter Okay. that <laughs> if you asked uh, the general public to write down the number, let's say, 75 trillion, whether they would have the correct number of zeros in it. I mean, these large numbers are uh, just incomprehensible. That, yeah, that's what I yeah. think. But they're also, in a way, it's almost like there's there's something sublime about it in a sort of quasi-Kantian sense. Because you hear a number like that, and it's almost awe-inspiring or something. And yeah. It's... it's you're blown away by yeah. its magnitude. Yeah, 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 maybe, yeah, exactly. I guess that's more to the now, point. Let me, let me, I think we may talk about this a bit about sports you mentioned later. Oh, sure. But I want to point out something. I mean, we're, we're taking this kind of utilitarian line. I mean, you're saying if you don't make any difference, it doesn't really matter if you eat a hamburger or a piece of chicken. That yeah, yeah, goes yeah. under the causal impotence argument that's been spoken about now for 25 years or so. But I mean, we Which is? Could you just clarify Well, that? just that, that the idea is if, if you're not making, if an individual 
contribution to something bad, be it meat eating or pollution, is not going to affect the total amount of uh, badness that occurs, then there's nothing wrong with eating the chicken or going out in your car for a short drive. Yeah, yeah. But you got to remember, you wouldn't want to be complicit in an activity that you think is wrong. You wouldn't want to endorse that or advocate it in any way. And by buying and eating that meat, you are complicit. You may not add to the amount of harm per se, but I wouldn't want to be complicit in an activity I thought was evil. Uh, If I may, just to give you a quick example. if Real you, quick before the example, can yeah. I just say one thing? Sure. I, I didn't mean to suggest that we shouldn't turn lights off when we leave rooms or that I, I didn't mean to suggest that we should say um, throw in the towel and go, well, my in, in individual difference isn't going to make much of a difference. Um, I just n- wanted to clarify that. Um, and I hope it didn't sound like I was suggesting that. But I know like in studying sustainability and environmentalism, there are people that want to say let's look at the big gloomy numbers and and just in terms of the rhetoric of how we inspire change like let's talk less about the individual contribution and let's talk about like this is what the world will look like 50 years from now but i'm sorry so you had an example well look let's say you knew a movie that you wanted to see employed young women and girls that were sexually abused and that were part of a sex traffic ring, and they were forced to perform in this movie. Now, you going to that movie would be, uh, let's say, $10 you would pay to see that movie, and that wouldn't affect in any way. I would think it would be too small to affect any production of other movies using these kind of terrible operations with these young girls. But still, I think most of us would feel it would be wrong to attend that movie. You wouldn't want to be, again, complicit in this kind of activity, even if your complicity doesn't add to the harm that's being created. So that that would be analogous to eating meat, even if, which I don't think it's true, it wouldn't contribute to the any additional harm. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, and that makes sense. Uh, yeah. And there are plenty but, uh, of other examples, but I won't bore you. No, well, no, please, please, that, no. Right? I, I, I think we're all enjoying this very much. Um, I know I am. I'm, I feel like I'm learning a lot today. So thank you. Um, here, here's a question. Sure. Here's another sort of aspect to this. If you're vegetarian, one thing that bothers me not about vegetarians, but one thing that bothers me about buying produce at the grocery store, and believe me, like I am guilty of this one of make very clear that I am aware of my transgressions in these ways. Um, but the amount of plastic that they use to yeah. pat and like post-consumer packaging. Now meat is incredibly guilty of this cause it's on styrofoam with plastic all around or whatever. Right. But it's uh, sometimes even going to the grocery store. You just think, why is this item in a plat, you know, no, I totally piece agree. Of plastic or, yeah. I mean, even when I buy a vegan item in the grocery store, I mean, if you want it to be technical, I suppose I'm supporting the store and allowing them to pay for their lights, and that allows them to buy and sell meat. So, I mean, if you go further and further back in the chain, it's very hard to be a saint, and I'm not one. So, um, As the boss put it, it's hard to be a saint in the city. He did say that. Yeah, I bring that up in class occasionally, but they don't know what I'm talking about. It's too long ago. Are you a fan of the boss? <laughs> I am. 
I am indeed. Not too far from me in New Jersey. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Ashbury Park. Yeah. But at any rate, yeah. In other words, that some people call you, you can be an aspirational vegan. You try as much as you can knowing that you're never going to be uh, completely saintly. It's it's virtually impossible, at least in a in the United States, maybe on a hill somewhere in India, but even there it would be hard. I'm really thinking now, and I should say this, we're we're getting up close to the end of the time. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we had mentioned a couple of times having a conversation about sports, yeah. and I talked about changing gears, but this has been so insightful and helpful today that I think we'll leave it here, if that's all right. Absolutely. Would you be willing to come back and talk about sports anytime okay well not anytime but when many anytime times. that we anytime <laughs> Three that fits in the morning, into your schedule yeah all right all right anytime that fits into your schedule That's um but i do want to have you back for a part two because there were some ethical concerns i had with um being a spectator or a viewer of sports and particularly the nfl Terrific. just to um you know s- signpost that for the audience um but to wrap this up today i I can't thank you. And I mean, this is some of these numbers are staggering and I'm having that same sort of feeling that, you know, when I first started to listen to say like sustainability or environmental podcasts where you just think I had no idea that this is, that this is what's happening. Um, which I think got me out of my sort of, well, I'm just one person. What difference is it going to make? I think there was a time in my life, probably early to mid twenties, where I thought that way, particularly about the environment, and because it's so defeating when you just see people driving like a huge gas guzzling truck next to you and like flicking cigarettes yeah. out the window, and then, but that's no way to approach it. I mean, that's uh, um, it sounds like um, some of the, the what you were talking about the the argument for um, complicit being complicit in yeah. in this. Um, sort of works in a similar way. Um, I also feel like, and unfortunately, and I say this with all due respect to the grindstone, um, you know, I wish we had hundreds of thousands of listeners and we could say, Hey, maybe like, well, I'll try like to do a, a meatless month or something like that. But I'm thinking maybe, maybe the grindstone should, should after this episode, yeah, but maybe we should sponsor something like that. I don't know how many people would listen, but you know, I'll keep, I'll keep listeners, uh, up to date on my, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, on my uh, transformation here potentially. Yeah. Um, and I ask listeners to hold me to that because I don't want to just be somebody saying these things. Um, last thing, sure. or maybe not the last thing, but just to, to wrap this up, um, where do you feel that we can make a change beyond the individual, just, you know, not eating meat and becoming a vegetarian or a vegan in terms of like the broader, say political or legislative yeah. landscape. Uh, is there anything happening out there now that you feel like is, is making headway in the right direction or the things you would like to see? What's, what's something that you think is both practical, um, you know, for say a large federal scale yeah. like we have here in the U S but also could be potentially very effective yeah. if not, you know, demanding that people convert to vegetarianism or something like that, but really reducing the amount of meat or the the kind of meat we eat, meaning, you know, factory farm. Yeah, I think you hit upon the main point. We really need institutional changes. Uh, First thing I'd want to say, there may be a little bit of hope for that, because at least in my lifetime, and I'm sure it hasn't happened before, Two of the, at least two of the Democratic candidates have publicly announced they are vegan, Cory Booker and Tulsi right. Gabbard. 
Okay. And, and Tulsi, <coughs> excuse me, Tulsi Gabbard was uh, in the armed forces and yes, um, <coughs> you know, fought for our countries, which I think helps this too. Um, so the word has come out. Vegan. I've never heard the yeah, both vegan, vegan, yeah, not just vegetarian. Yeah, yeah, that's what they claim. I have no reason to disbelieve them. Sure. Um, <coughs> And I have never heard the word vegan before in any kind of campaign until this one. So it's gaining awareness. It's gaining some traction. It's the fastest, it, veganism, is the fastest growing section within vegetarianism. That is, although veganism is about 1% of the population and vegetarianism is about 3 to 3.5%, three the fasting, fastest growing segment of that 3.5% is the vegan proponent of that 3.5%. If you get that st- sharper slope for veganism than the rest of vegetarianism. So all of this, I think— And that's global population? 1%. This is for this country. Okay, U.S. This 1% of one vegans, 3 to 3.5% vegetarian. About, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's hard to get exact numbers uh, uh, for various—one re- reason is people— give different definitions of a vegetarian. It's almost like my mother. If you don't eat chicken, you're a, you know, if you eat chicken but don't eat red meat, you're a vet. No, you're not a vegetarian. <laughs> I, I've, <laughs> I've had people describe their diets and call themselves vegetarians. I say, yeah, you're carnivoro vegetarians. You're vegetarians that eat meat. Yeah, we don't need those kind of vegetarians. Yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah, uh, what kind of uh, institutional and political changes? Now, look, this... Whether it can be done within a market economy probably would be a little more difficult than if it weren't a market economy. But I don't think that's impossible. I think we need more, if you will, though it sounds a little corny, and more of a change of heart than anything else and a recognition of what we're doing to the billions of animals that are destroyed each year at our hands. So once I think people get a grasp of the significance of that, uh, I think that will help spur not only personal but institutional change. Dr. Mark Bernstein, thank you so much for being here today. This has been insightful and enlightening for me, Um, and I appreciate your time, but also I do want to get you back for the uh, sports-themed pot grindstone episode if if you're willing to to return absolutely matt my pleasure all right thank you so much for being here and listeners thanks for paying attention today um stay tuned to the grindstone again you can follow us on social media um, or the website look forward to bringing you the next episode thank you so much dr bernstein thank you the grindstone is brought to you by the department of philosophy at purdue university and is supported by the college of liberal arts at purdue Our intro and outro music is by Al Turity. You can follow the Department of Philosophy at Purdue on Facebook at Philosophy at Purdue, on Twitter at Philo, all caps, P-H-I-L-O, underscore Purdue, and on Instagram at Philo, underscore Purdue. Break into song. Slip, if you're, no, no, don't play. Okay, all right. Nailed it, by the way. <laughs>